the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome. We made it through another week. Friday, February 23rd, 2024. I am Seth Leapson. Mr. Bill, good to see you in fine fettle. David Dahl, my producer, good to see you in fine fettle. And Terry is always in good fine fettle. What's a fettle? Oh, you better look it up. F-E-T-T-L-E, fine fettle. 602-508-0960 is the number. For the rest of you, I remember a paper I wrote as a young and immature college sophomore for a class on Congress and the presidency. One might quite literally say I was being sophomoric. I remember well, I wrote that the president of the United States is the embodied representative of the American people, the international embodiment as much as the national embodiment of who we as Americans are at any given moment. I'm still not sure if I was right at the time or if I'm right now, but how did Dylan Thomas put it? I can never remember whether it snowed for six days and six nights when I was 12 or whether it snowed for 12 days and 12 nights when I was six. But I was put in mind of all of this reading Lance Morrow in today's Wall Street Journal. The point being, if Joe Biden represents who we are as a people, we are in much thicker soup than we think. If Joe Biden is an exemplar or a representation of the average American, we are old, doddering fools and race baiters who don't know the difference between chicken salad and chicken coops, or things that rhyme with chicken coop. President Biden, Mr. Morrow, assesses his, quote, a brittle relic from the mediocre side of American politics, close quote. Goes on to write, Isn't it true that America's presidents reflect the society that sends them to the White House, its tone and style, its character, some intangible national self? Think of Warren Harding and Calvin Coolidge as representative of the 1990s. Think of Dwight Eisenhower, icon of America in the 1950s, or of Ronald Reagan as the incarnation of the 1980s. President Biden is a selfish, tiresome old cartoon. Does that mean that America itself has turned into a selfish, tiresome old cartoon? Some say a country gets what it deserves. Others claim it gets what it doesn't deserve. Did the Russian people deserve Stalin in the 20th century? Do they deserve Putin in the 21st? Do Russians have a mystic Slavic need for an autocrat czar? What of Hitler and the German people? Was he the fulfillment of their dark longings? Or did he preside over the Reich for 12 long years despite the civilized inclinations of his people? Darwin wrote of the survival of the fittest. If he was right, how can it be that the American political process has come up with leaders so unfit? Unnatural selection, maybe, Morrow asks. Joining Mr. Morrow on the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal today is also Peggy Noonan, who writes the following this week. No one knows how Mr. Biden is thinking about the massive illegal immigration crisis. People are coming to believe, and they are right, that it isn't only a matter of the law, our capacities, and our culture, but what is happening now at the border has a huge national security component. 
all the friendly, well-put-together Chinese nationals crossing. Who are they? Why are they coming? How did this happen? All the Eastern Europeans, Asians, and Africans. Once Mexico was coming illegally, then Central and South America, now the world, including people on the terrorist watch list. This is a border collapse. We can't imagine how this ends well. And that's all putting it lightly. And while it is a short-term national security threat with the short term being acutely, maybe even existentially dangerous. The long-term threat, the chronic threat, is no less real. In his letters from an American farmer, St. Jean de Crevacour wrote something important in the 1780s that we all used to be taught. We all used to be taught this in school. I don't believe we're taught it anymore. And in its lost teaching, something else has been lost too. But here's what he wrote asking what new Americans receive here. The knowledge of the language, the love of a few kindred as poor as himself, were the only cords that tied him. His country is now that which gives him land, bread, and protection, and consequence. For where there is bread, there is my country, ubi panis, ibi patria. That is the motto of all immigrants. What then is the American, this new man, Krivikor asks? I could point out to you a family whose grandfather was an Englishman, whose wife was Dutch, whose son married a Frenchwoman, and whose, parent, and whose present four sons have now four wives of different nations. We could, of course, speak of any continent today. This was when the only immigration really was European. But this new American farmer would go on to describe what the immigrant receives here. He is an American who, leaving behind him all his ancient prejudices and manners, receives new ones from the new mode of life he has embraced, the new government he obeys, and the new rank he holds. He becomes an American by being received in the broad lap of our great alma mater. Here, individuals of all nations are melted into a new race of men whose labors and posterity will one day cause great changes in the world. Americans are the Western pilgrims who are carrying along with them that great mass of art, science, vigor, and industry, which began long since ago in the East. And we will finish the great circle here. The Americans were once scattered all over. Here they are incorporated into one of the finest systems of population which has ever appeared and which will hereafter become distinct by the power of the different climates they inhabit. The American ought, therefore, to love this country much better than that wherein either he or his forefathers were born. Here the rewards of his industry follow with equal steps the progress of his labor. His labor is founded on the basis of nature, self-interest. Can it want a stronger allurement? Wives and children who before in vain demanded of him a morsel of bread now fat and frolicsome, gladly help their father to clear those fields whence exuberant crops are to arise to feed and to clothe them all, without any part being claimed either by despotic prince, a rich abbot, or a mighty lord. Here religion, religion demands but little of him, a small voluntary salary to the minister and gratitude to God. Can he refuse these? The American is a new man who acts upon new principles. He must, therefore, entertain new ideas and form new opinions. From involuntary idleness, servile dependence, penury, and useless labor, he has passed to toils of a very different nature, rewarded 
by ample subsistence. This, Crevacore concludes, is an American. And by the way, you can see where we get the phrase melting pot from as we talk about, as Crevacore talks about coming from the old country to melt into a new one. It's where it comes from. But we've lost this teaching, haven't we? I don't think you probably were taught it in school, young David. I don't think most people are anymore. It's all seen as perhaps just too quaint and, my gosh, the melting pot so out of style these days. But having lost that teaching, as I say, I think we've lost a lot. And this is the long-term or chronic problem as opposed to the acute one regarding our immigration problems and policies as matters of national security. It is equally not more, not less, but equally a chronic problem regarding how we educate Americans here in our schools, not just our immigrants or illegal immigrants, but Americans born here, though they may be fifth or more generation Americans. They're not getting these teachings either. An ancestor's beliefs and mores do not guarantee their legatees' beliefs and mores. And schools, pedagogy, teaching make it more so or less so. Maybe we've earned mediocre politics in this country, but it's belittling. And if we have earned it, it's not good. I'd like to think it's not deserved. But you look around you at the political leadership, and boy, is it seemingly seemingly ubiquitous. All right. It's an open line Friday, 602-508-0960. Let's have a little bit of fun. We tried to do that on Fridays, fun Fridays. We'll uh, make a little sport of young David. We'll learn a little bit from him, and we'll hear what's on your mind. Open to anything. 602-508-0960. Be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Um, we're going to have Ed Morrissey on in the next hour. He of hot air. I want to. He helped <clears throat> promote and break a story that... Um, is a heck of a story coming out of the Fulton DA's office. Um, and I don't know if you saw it, but based on cell phone data, it looks very much like, um, no surprise, uh, Fannie uh, Willis, uh, who was prosecuting Donald Trump in Fulton County, Georgia, and Nathan Wade, the special, or I should say, uh, ad hoc prosecutor she hired and had an affair with or had a relationship with, however you want to pitch it, were lying on the stand under oath. Donald Trump's legal team had a bombshell in its back pocket after all, Ed writes. In a new filing in the Fonnie Willis disqualification motions, cell phone records demonstrate that Willis and Nathan Wade's close relationship started before she hired him as the special prosecutor for the RICO case against Trump. And if this data is ultimately substantiated, it could set up both lawyers for perjury charges and Disbarment. Nathan Wade appeared to make at least 35 visits 
to the Hipville neighborhood where Fannie Willis was living before the district attorney hired him to lead Fulton County's election interference prosecution, according to cell phone data, including in a court submission filed Friday. So one of them is lying. One of them is lying. Either Fannie Willis and Nathan Wade are lying or the Trump attorneys are lying. And the reason this is important is because Fannie Willis and Nathan Wade both testified that their relationship didn't start until after she hired him, as if that's better, (laughs) as if that's better. Trump's lawyers relied on data collected from Wade's cell phone and cell phone tower transmissions to track his movements. It contradicts Wade's testimony last week in which he said he had visited Willis at her condo in Hapville no more than 10 times before he was hired in November 2021. It also indicates Wade twice arrived late at night at the condo and left early in the next morning in the months before Willis and Wade said the relationship became romantic. In 2022, both Wade and Willis testified last week that they did not spend nights together at the Hapeville condo. So how did they get the data and is it reliable? The filing explains that the defense team subpoenaed AT&T to get the data, and it's remarkable. In court, Wade was somewhat ambiguous and evasive when asked when their relationship started, but Willis was far more direct. She insisted that they had a collegial relationship and nothing more prior to November 2021, when she hired Wade, and that they had never spent any extended time together. Willis specifically denied that Wade had ever stayed overnight anywhere she resided until after his hiring and his filing for divorce, which happened, by the way, within 24 hours of each other. Well, the records show something a little different. Affidavit says Willis and Wade called each other more than 2,000 times during the first 11 months of 2021 and exchanged just under 12,000 text messages. All right, hold on. <laughs> I've heard of torrid affairs. 2,000 times and 12,000 text messages? Mr. Bill, how many, how many text messages do you even have total with everyone you engage with, including your wife, your beloved? There's no way. There's just no way. 2,000 calls over a period of 334 days. That's six calls a day. Add to that an average of 36 texts a day, and you don't just have a relationship. You have an obsession. You have an obsession. This more resembles a high school crush than an adult romance or perhaps more like a RICO conspiracy. Um. <laughs> there is an issue that we all kind of learned about. I mean, we all kind of learned about hubris and pride, right? Being the great downfall, the great the great downfall of any any political or other leader. And boy did she have a lot of pride and hubris, especially when she was testifying last week. Very arrogant. Very arrogant. Someone was asking me the other day. I don't know if my answer will gel with y'all or not, but someone was asking me the other day, "What's uh, what's the greatest? How did they put it? What's the greatest problem in society today?" They actually put it slightly the other way around, which led to a slightly more articulate answer. They said. What's the one thing we are missing more than anything else today? 
and I didn't take too long. I, I mean, maybe just a few moments. Maybe about that much time right there, that pause, to say the thing that we need to do most to fix society is teach fables and nursery books and children's stories again. That's what's missing more than anything else. I was thinking about Bethany Mandel's call with us yesterday, interview, this nonsensical notion of a kindergarten book she was noticing in the Montgomery County Public Schools. What was that something? Do you remember Young David or, young David or Bill? It was something about a pride dinosaur or something? Pride dino, yeah, whatever it was. I don't know what that's going to teach you. Those kinds of books are going to teach you that help you navigate society or help you navigate life or even, you know, the progression of your youthful development and the progression from, you know, kindergarten and elementary and teen and adolescent growth into adult or into young adult and adult growth. I just don't know how these quasi-pornographic and sometimes indeed very explicitly pornographic books replacing the traditional stuff children used to learn in schools. I don't know how it's going to help, but I've come to the conclusion that a lot of this is so deliberate that it's not simply just we want to introduce kindergartners and first graders to these sexualized and complicated themes of body dysmorphia and that sort of thing. It's not just that. There is that. There is that pedagogical tug towards doing that. And I get that. But I've come to conclude, too, there is a deliberate effort not to improve and build on the society that we have, but to destroy and take it down. What's the line Rhett Butler has from Gone with the Wind? What people forget is that it's just as easy to make money tearing down a society as it is building one up. That's what's going on in our schools. That's why I think, though it may sound silly or simple, it's not. It's very serious. Fables, fairy tales, and good young stories. That's what's missing. Nursery rhymes, fairy tales, and fables. That's what our society needs most right now. Okay, I, you're just now, you want to rub this in? Shall we share the audience? Uh, this Les Majesté that has been taking place here against me from you? What is that? <laughs> uh, uh, on the radio by uh, Donna Summer, I suppose. Yes, you're listening to the sweet sounds of Donna Summer right here on you, KKNT. You were invited to a dinner party and disco dancing event tonight that I was uninvited to, and now you're just rubbing it I don't even know in. why you're saying that you were uninvited. <sighs> well, <laughs> you're such a drama <laughs> queen, you know that? No, Mr. Villa, is, is, is uninvited a hard phrase to understand? Is it? It's, it's not a hard phrase to know what that means, does it? Uninvited. It, it, it's not like fine fettle that you need to look up. It's a perfectly clear for, for word, isn't it? Uninvited. Okay. Oh, I understand the terminology of uninvited. I don't understand how it applies to your specific situation. 
Uh, yes, but for contacts, ladies and gentlemen, I will be going out tonight uh, to a disco party. And the host of said disco party said, well, you know, would Seth like to come? And and I said, well, yes, I think uh, he... <laughs> That's totally not how this went down, but go ahead. Well, you want to tell it? No. Yes, I do. <laughs> yes, I do want to tell it. The, they are having a dinner party and disco dancing night. And they they asked David, should they invite me? And he said yes. I and, said he's and guess usually what? busy on Friday the, nights. The, invite night never the golden ticket never arrived. Never arrived. Oh, man. Now, the thing is, I can't do it anyway. So, I, I'm, I, as I said, you know, he's, uh, he's uh, usually busy on yeah. Friday nights. Yeah. Yes, I don't dance. I, I just don't. You won't dance? How could I? Don't ask me. Yeah. How could I? Merci beaucoup. No, uh, I had a other plan tonight anyway, but uh, very sweet of you to at least raise the possibility that I might want to be invited to a fun night of things. Oh, yeah, sure. And very... Didn't you see me walking around in my white Marvin Gaye suit? Yeah, it's not you know, It's not something I wanted to spend a lot of time on. Uh, you didn't need to tell the audience that information? Is that what they call an overshare? Yeah, it's an overshare. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's good. <laughs> it's an overshare. I just want to see what your leisure suit looks like. I'm oh, sure you, you have mean? a few in the closet from when you were in high school. Oh, you know what I did, by the way? This is interesting. You will find this interesting. The audience, I think, will find this interesting. Probably the last, last three minutes, not so much. But this, will, they will find interesting. Mr. Bill, can you come in? You may remember um, there is a book. I said this to three of my friends. Uh, many of you know I run a lot. And um, there is a book that has sold a million copies that influenced my friends in my life probably almost as much as any other book, and we've never read it. Do you remember this, Bill? I'm going to push you. The answer to that great question is Jim's Fix Complete Book of Running. Do you remember the Jim Fix Book of Running? Maybe you're just too young for it. But it set off the running craze in 1977-78. There was no real running. I mean, there was, but not like it is now. There was like one running shoe. So what was the Should I let you talk? <laughs> I, I don't have to. I've never read it or per- been one of the million that purchased it, but You've heard was of it. there a takeaway that made running take off? Have, yes, it made running take off. And you, do you not remember that cover? Have you not seen it before? No. I have not seen that, Your Honor. Not seen it before wow. in my life. Okay. So that's just an interesting minimalist cover pair of running legs for those who stop it those are his by the way legs jim fix he started the running craze and from 77 on i mean running was everywhere and there were books about running and the loneliness what was it the loneliness of the long distance runner and and then sneakers running sneakers running shoes became a thing and um there i mean you couldn't even recognize those shoes on jim fix on that picture in 1977 Mm. Today, I don't know how big that industry is, but uh, what would you guess the running shoe industry is? A hundred billion dollar Pretty industry? big. I, I'm guessing. Sure. And anyway, we've never, me and my running partners, we have never read this book, male and female alike. We've never read it. And yet, this is the book that has, so I ordered a copy. And I, why did I think this was interesting? 1977 or something? I don't know why. He died running. Wow. Yeah, died doing what he loved. Fifty-two or three years old, mm. and it was a big issue. It was a big issue, and the truth of the matter is, 
in retrospect, it looks like given the congenital given the congenital history of heart disease in his family, he probably extended his life. Uh, yeah, four you years. have to be fair. Yeah, yeah, and this was in the seventies when people died of heart attacks. Okay, looks like we've loaded up the calls. We'll be right back. Boogie shoes. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson. You're on him. Huh? You're on him. <laughs> 602-508-0960. Coming to you live from the veteran-owned Midas Gold Group 960, the Patriot Broadcast Studio. Veteran-owned Midas Gold Group, your trusted source for precious metals. Tony is in Tempe. Hi, Tony. Hi, Seth. I've called you before. I listen to you all the time. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. And I was surprised that nobody was calling you. You said that it was call-in day and that we're going to have some fun. I so. wanted to. I mean, you know, I, until I learned that I was uninvited from a disco party tonight and all that, I was looking forward to a fun Friday. Okay. Well, you're always alluding to the Wall Street Journal, and I'm just wondering if you saw the book review on, what is it, Fiorello? LaGuardia, I think it was Wednesday. No, tell me about it. Tell me. Oh, my gosh. Well, as you know, he was the mayor, what, three terms, 1934 to 1945. Congressman, too, wasn't he? I think he served in Congress, too. Yeah, yeah, he did a lot of different Uh things. Uh But, I mean, he is renowned as being, like, the best in the world ever. Okay. And, And really interesting. So it alluded to his radio program. Did you know that he would read... Read the uh, cartoons, did, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did, did, you, did you mention that on your show? I, if I didn't, I could have. Uh, I remember my mom taught me that when I was a little boy. Okay, uh, we would read. We would you. always look forward to the Sunday funnies. Do they still have... Do they call them the Sunday funnies anymore? <laughs> do yeah, you, yeah, they do. Do they, they even do. have oh, cartoons in color on Sundays in the yes. newspaper? Oh, my gosh. Are you kidding? Yes, of course they do. They still do? do? Okay. All right. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, so I actually wanted to hear, and I Googled it, and I listened to them. That's what we need. The problem is bad doctrine. We've fallen away from biblical principles and doctrines. I know you've done those statistics about how many people have left the church. Oh, yeah, 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 right. Yeah, and and, I mean, that is the crux of it. It's all about learning. I mean, it's all about doctrine. It's all about your belief system, what you teach the kids. So you kind of agree with me, if if I hear you right, Tony, about when I said maybe the most important thing is going back to fairy tales, fables, and... and, and, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, with morals. Yeah. With good morals. And that's the sort of thing that he would do over the radio, and I just enjoy it. And you can hear them? They're preserved? Yeah, 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 go. They're all on YouTube, and I just wanted your uh, listeners also to know, because I'm sure they would enjoy it also. Just go on there and Google it, and... Oh, I just enjoyed it so much. So even though a lot of ladies don't call in, I thought, well, it's about time. <laughs> it's fun listening to you guys go back and forth, but it's about time that you hear from a lady. And I thought this was something your, your, uh, you know, people would really enjoy looking. No, into. I love it, Tony. Well, Thank you. I, I love it very much. Are you from Tempe originally? Well, I'm a native. Yeah, I'm a native of Arizona. Okay. So I love it here, especially the mountains up in Flagstaff in the summer. Yeah. You betcha. Flagstaff's a fun city in the summer. Thank you, well, thank Tony. Thank you so much. Yeah, you yeah. bet. Feel Rello LaGuardia. That's not a name I expected to hear today. But um, you know who I bet would have some interesting history on him is uh, our historian, Tevi Troy. I bet he'd have some really good history on LaGuardia because he's a New Yorker and he loves that sort 
of thing. Very interesting guy. He was kind of on the short side. Did you know that they made a Broadway musical about him? No. It was aptly titled Fiorello. Okay. Yeah. Eponymous, an epon, eponymously named, an eponymously named musical. Eponymously named. Yeah. Yes. Got three new words in the sour. <sighs> I guess somebody's writing them down somewhere. Yeah, Mark probably. Um, be aware of something that's gonna, you know, you're gonna want to put your armor on about um, in the political campaign. I was talking yesterday. I was talking a lot about Joe Biden's attacking Republicans for being racist and, you know, this nonsense. More racist than segregationists like Strom Thurmond. Just uh, just unbelievable stuff. He was poisoning our <clears throat> airwaves with last 48 hours. Um, so we're racists when it's Joe Biden campaigning against us. But notice the other thing I want you to go and make sure and observe. It's also that we're all in the Republican movement and the conservative movement. We're all Christian nationalists now, too. I think they've dropped the white nationalist. I think they've dropped the white nationalist because it's hard to call, you know, your Larry Elders and your Vivek Ramaswamy's and your George Kaloff's and your Dennis. I mean, it's it's just very hard to call these people whiteness. So I think they've dropped that, and they're now going to Christian nationalist. Watch out for that, and watch how they define it too. It's a very narrow and um, perverse definition they're working with. I saw on MSNBC today one of their main reporters. Um, should have her journalistic license if they issue those sorts of things. They don't, but press credentials revoked for idiocy. Idiocy. This is uh, on MSNBC um, this morning defining what Christian nationalism is. And this is a staff reporter at MSNBC, someone who has worked at NBC, someone who has worked at Politico. Um, well, I'll say no more. Listen to her. One thing that unites all of them, because there's many different groups orbiting Trump, but the thing that unites them as Christian nationalists, not Christians, by the way, because Christian nationalists is very different, mm -hmm. is that they believe that our rights as Americans, as all human beings, don't come from any earthly authority. They don't come from Congress. They don't come from the Supreme Court. They come from God. The, the one thing... Did you get that? The one thing... These Christian nationalists, by the way, extremists, not just Christians. She made this very clear. We're not just talking Christians, but Christian nationalists. The one thing orbiting Trump that they all believe is that our, ro our rights don't come from earthly authority. They come not from Congress and not the Supreme Court, but from God, but from God. This genius. Has she ever read the Declaration of Independence? Has she ever read the Constitution? Has she read almost any inaugural speech of almost any president? The idea that one thinks our rights come from God is now Christian nationalism it's, or extremism of any kind or that our rights do come from the Supreme Court, our rights do come from Congress, not from God. What does she think unalienable or inalienable rights mean? 
What does she think laws of nature and nature's God means? What does she think not able to alienate a right means? What does she think the Constitution preamble means? Blessings of liberty. Do we ordain this Constitution, heaven forfend, or just forfend? This is what passes for intelligence, but more importantly, it is what passes for liberal left campaigns against us. Be ready for it. Be ready for it. Portions of the show brought to you by our good friends at Y-Refi. Um, you can check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com, or give them a call at 888-YREFI24. You can also visit them. They're headquartered here locally. Their offices are right on Chauncey Lane in North Phoenix. Um, I've been there any number of times. They won't give you a sales pitch. They won't ask you to sign anything. They leave the selling up to me. So what is it that Y-Refi offers? Uh, An investment in a secure and collateralized portfolio where you get a monthly statement with no surprises, where there is no attack on principle if you ever need your money back, where there are absolutely no fees, where you are in control. You can turn your income on or off. You can compound it whatever you like. And where, best of all, you can earn up to a 10.25% fixed rate of return, and it's not correlated to the stock market or the Federal Reserve. That's right, a 10 and a quarter percent fixed rate of return not tied to the Fed or the stock market. If you don't visit them in person, check them out online. Investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com, or give them a call at 888-YREFI-24. 888-YREFI-24. Um, Ed Morsey from Hot Air is going to join us. Pete Peterson, Pepperdine's going to join us. I want to talk to him all about this stuff. I want to talk about the Fannie Willow stuff. I want to talk to him about this brain surgeon at MSNBC who thinks that our rights don't come from a higher authority, but they come from the Congress and the Supreme Court. I mean, the entire body of the Constitution was designed to protect the rights, enumerated and natural, enumerated by the Constitution, natural as validated by the very point of the founding of this country, words of which are found in the Declaration of Independence. You wanted to say something about an op-ed she wrote, young David? She wrote an op-ed? No? Ignore Ixnay on the op-ed, Snay? What? All of these comments on her appearance today on Oh, we were based on an op-ed. are coming from something she wrote on oh. Tuesday. Oh, okay. And so it's it's... It's both libel and slander. Do you know the difference? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do. One is written, one is said. Right. Yes. Okay. Um, but what is interesting yeah. is this appearance this morning on MSNBC yeah, yeah. was in an attempt to, uh, what is the word? Uh, rehabilitate the her reputation? Yes, rehabilitate uh-huh. your reputation. Uh, not, not doing too good of a job there, yeah. huh? All right, brother. Let's uh, get Ed Morrissey on the phone, and we will be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.